With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The volume. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. The Nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, we're going to be talking about some of the biggest NBA storylines that have jumped out to us recently. This has been one of the best starts to a regular season that I can remember, dude. So many competitive, talented teams. So much impressive basketball through these first couple weeks. And one team... They got off to a slow start through the first three games, but since has really flipped a switch and beaten the two best teams in basketball up to this point in the regular season is the Minnesota Timberwolves. We talked last week about being underwhelmed by their start, some of the late game issues, some of the clunkiness offensively. It was a bit ugly. Now they've gone out, they've beaten the Nuggets, they've beaten the Celtics. How impressed are you by what you've seen, not just with the T-Wolves at large, but specifically with Anthony Edwards, who has been a driving factor in that and who has really taken yet another leap? Yeah, he really has, Carson. And I've been very impressed with the Timberwolves overall. But uh, Anthony Edwards is, I mean, going, he's taking an all-star to an all-NBA caliber leap. And he's really powering this team uh, to play their best basketball. You know, this year, 28-7-5, splits, an absurd 62% true shooting this year. And we saw some of it last year when Ant was a first-time All-Star. He put up 25-6-4 on 46-37-76 splits, uh, 56% true shooting. And we've always seen it with Ant, his bread and butter, getting downhill. He is an explosive, explosive, unstoppable athlete. And he's super strong going to the bucket. And he's super hard to stay in front of. He's also got great body control in the lane on layups, dunks, and attempts inside. He's just a a weapon getting downhill. He's shooting 67% inside five feet. He's shooting over 70% in the restricted area. And he's he's an 84th percentile transition scorer, right? We've kind of always known that about Ant. That's been his bread and butter. But the reliable pull-up jump shooting that we've seen from Ant makes him borderline unguardable. Last season, he shot 37% from deep, 34% on pull-ups, and 37% in the mid-range. This year, he's shooting 50% in the mid-range, 47% from deep, 58% on pull-ups, and 69% on pull-up threes. And I think this level of pull-up jump shooting, Carson, is a little bit unsustainable, but it's real progress in his pull-up jump shooting. Along with that, he's been an 84th percentile pick-and-roll scorer this year. 
I, I, the pick and it just makes you such a, a difficult weapon to guard. You can't run full drop on him because if you give him the lane, he can just pull up in your face. If you try to step up on him, he can blow uh, right around you and go up for an easy layup. I've liked Ant's playmaking too. Uh, he's not doing anything, you know, super spectacular. He's not doing Luca LeBron stuff, but he's making good reads. He's finding the open guy when the defense gives it to him. Uh, and is just playing like a superstar and propelling the Timberwolves to a top 10 offense when I think they'd be absolutely anemic without Ant. The Timberwolves are 25.3 points per 100 possessions better with Ant on the floor. They're playing like a 71-win team with him out there and a 14-win team without Ant on the floor. They're a whopping 20.6 points better offensively. They have equivalent to the ninth best offense with Ant on the floor and the 30th offense without Ant, an offensive rating of 93.9 without him. I also want to emphasize they are 16.5 points better in the half court with Ant than without him. I mean, that is massive. And then defensively, he's making an impact. Obviously, I think the collective is huge into Ant uh, in this team, you know, being great defensively. But Ant is a huge component of that, too. He's a good point of attack defender, and he's a good wing defender at this point. You know, we predicted it, Carson. He was on our very short list of top 10 guys to build around. We anticipated this leap in MVP level. We expected that he could reach this. But it's really surreal to see it happen in real time. And I do think he's taken another leap. I think we've seen him go from all-star to all-NBA to potentially with where the Timberwolves finish up record-wise, maybe an MVP caliber leap from Anthony Edwards. I couldn't be happier. And I think this means meaningful things in terms of winning impact for the Timberwolves. I've been saying that Ant pretty clearly has a scoring champion sort of ceiling for the last couple years, but the one hole that we have seen in his scoring game is that lack of touch and intermediate shot making, which is crucial. He may be unstoppable coming downhill, he may have these flame-throwing pull-up shooting stretches from deep, but ultimately, when you are facing drop coverage and when pick and roll is as essential as it is today to any perimeter player's scoring arsenal, you need to be able to dissect that with those free throw line sort of jumpers and push shots. And Ant has never had that in his bag, really. He's never had great touch from there. And you mention it, dude. This has been a massive leap from him in that respect. Last year, he made 1.1 mid-range field goals per game on under 37% shooting. That was 45th in the league in terms of volume. This year, he is making 3.2 mid-range field goals per game on 50% shooting. That is now the third most mid-range field goals per game in the entire NBA. So he has taken his lone weakness as a scorer and he has turned it into yet another strength. And it's made him better from everywhere. And is having his most efficient scoring season from every single range on the floor. And... You've always seen those NBA University graphics, or at least I have, that will show like all these guys different percentiles. And for Ant, he gets like an F in terms of rim shot quality, but he gets an A plus in terms of rim finishing because he is attacking these congested paints. Not good looks for any mortal being, but he's just such a special athlete in terms of his strength and his vertical ability and his ability to change directions and angles in the air he can just finish anything around the rim but now he's getting some cleaner looks at the rim this year because of the reality that guys have to respect that pull-up shooting so much that they have to play him tighter than ever before and basically nobody can contain anthony edwards downhill as a driver his first step is just one of the absolute best in the league so he is point blank one of the best scores in the nba today and he has grown in the biggest question mark. And that's really true across Ant's game. If you think about 
what we were unsure of with him as a prospect. Well, that was a big one in terms of his touch scoring. But the overall pull-up shooting was a question at Georgia. He is having an incredible start to the season there, has improved every single season. Playmaking was a real question, and he's still not a plus there, but he's continually progressed. Defense was a question, and he isn't perfect there. He remains inconsistent in terms of his effort and engagement. But when he is dialed in, and he's dialed in more than he was in college and in his rookie season and whatnot, he can have a real plus impact on that side of the ball. To me, you're looking at an all-around superstar. And I don't know where people draw that line, but I look at him as a top 15 player in the league today. My brother just texted me very serendipitously, actually, minutes before this podcast, would you rather have Ant or Donovan Mitchell not talking long-term, talking in the immediate, and I don't think it's close because the physical imposition that Ant can blend, attacking the rim so consistently at such a high level with this kind of pull-up shooting, and not just from deep now, but from the mid-range area as well, that overall versatility as a score, it's so valuable for the clutch, and it just makes him a more complete option at all times. And when you have to be respected from everywhere, you demand attention from everywhere, it opens up everything else in your game even more so. It makes you more efficient and better from everywhere. And then when you consider that he's going to have a more positive defensive impact than a guy like Donovan Mitchell, I think this is a guy who has already consistently upped his game in the postseason because of that unstoppable physicality blended with the pull-up shooting runs. And now, when you add another dimension to that with this intermediate shot making, he really is effectively unguardable. He really is, Carson. And I think this affects the whole outlook for the Timberwolves moving forward. You know, I was really pessimistic about this team, and we talked about it a ton after the Gobert trade. Even with an Anthony Edwards leap, I was pessimistic about this team moving forward. I thought they sold their future. And... I want to be clear about something. I still don't love the move, you know. I think they drastically overpaid considering what other superstars went for. I didn't love his contract. They gave up five first-round picks. Not a home run by any means, but... I, Including Walker Kessler. Well, yeah, yeah. a painful it, one. Exactly. And I thought they were dead in the water. I don't feel that way anymore. I think this thing can work. You know, you mentioned it. They hand the previously undefeated Nuggets and Celtics our you know, consensus around basketball media today, you know, the title front runners, two huge wins. And I think they're offensively okay around Edwards. Cat has had an abysmal start to the season. He's putting up 17, 9, and 3 on 38 and 24 splits, but I still think he compliments Ant, and I still think Cat is a good player. I like his playmaking. I like his shooting. I like his touch. And I think he can be an offensive number two. Again, we haven't seen it this season, but I still believe in Cat. And McDaniels is an awesome spot-up guy to have alongside him. He's shooting nearly 54% on catch-and-shoot threes this season. I think Mike Conley is criminally underrated. I think he's a phenomenal passer. I think he's the perfect complementary point guard to have alongside Anthony Edwards. Just a steadying hand and presence and connecting piece. And I've liked the ball movement that we've seen from Minnesota. The starting five has an offensive rating of 117.1. And you look at the depth guys, I like Nas Reed off the bench. I like the added shooting and playmaking sparks that you have in NAW and Shake Milton. And, you know, Gobert's not a great role man or great option offensively, but he can finish lobs. He's a big target in the paint. He can eat up boards. And more importantly, Gobert can still anchor your defense. The Timberwolves are number one in defensive rating right now. And I think a big component of that is that he's got the two best wing defenders and point of attack defenders Maybe he's ever had in his career. 
I mean, I truly think this is the best surrounding defense Gobert has ever had. McDaniels is all defense caliber. He wreaks havoc on that end. He had the third best defensive field goal percentage in the NBA last season, and he was top 10 in defensive field goal percentage inside 10 feet last season. I mean, for a wing, that is massive. He can help off of ball handlers penetrating on the perimeter. He's got super long arms that help him gamble and get into passing lanes. He's super active. He's a great athlete, and he's an uber-effective secondary help side rim protector. You've got Edwards. He's a phenomenal athlete. You talk about those lapses in judgment and effort. I think this is the most locked in that I've seen Ant on that end in his career, and uh, again, Gobert single-handedly was carrying Utah's defense to being the best in basketball with basically no plus defenders. So, Anthony Edwards has to continue dominating like this. Cat has to pull his weight and play better. This defense has to continue to dominate. But I like the timeline for the Timberwolves, Carson. We tend to think that dynasties are built with star power with these singular moves that propel teams into contention. And they're built with star power for sure. But I think time and continuity really matters with teams. The Warriors, the Nuggets, the Bucks. they all played together for a little bit before they took that leap. And I'm not saying that this team is at that level yet, but they're building something here and they've got time. Ant, Cat, McDaniels, Gobert, and Nas Reed are all locked up through 2026. You know, powered by Anthony Edwards in a top-notch defense, I think they're knocking on the door of real contender status out West. Again, I think there is a ceiling to this team with the dependency on Anthony Edwards. I don't know if he can consistently get this offense to you know reach that level to put them over the top but they've got time and I believe in this foundation that the Timberwolves are building man I this is one of the teams that I was lowest on the future of because of the Gobert contract because of the Cat contract but with the Anthony Edwards leap I'm a, a lot more optimistic this season and moving forward about this team's core and the ceiling that they could reach in the future that's interesting I don't know that this has meaningfully changed my outlook on this team long term. The ant leap to me was inevitable. It was a big factor that I did have Minnesota taking a step forward in the mm -hmm. preseason, winning 47 games versus being like a 500 team last year because I'm so confident in him becoming a superstar talent. Now, I have been really impressed by what this team is doing defensively. They went mm -hmm. from being a good defense last year to being the best in the league up to this point, and that's a mark I think that they can sustain or at least be very close to. This is the best interior defense in basketball. They are allowing the second fewest field goals made inside of six feet at the lowest field goal percentage in the league. And of course, Gobert is the driving factor in that. He's holding opposing players 14% below their typical field goal percentage at the rim. He had a bit of a down year last year and now has returned to his best regular season defender in the world sort of level. But it's not just about Gobert. And the one guy who you didn't mention, Logan, who I do think deserves credit, is what Carl Anthony Towns is doing defensively right now. First of all, he's a good secondary rim protector. He's holding opposing players 13% below their typical field goal percentage. And there are specific matchups in which he's very valuable as a post defender, particularly against the Nuggets, who the Timberwolves defend better than anybody else in basketball. They laid out the formula last year in the postseason for what the Lakers later tried to replicate with Rui guarding Jokic and AD as a roamer and a helper. The Timberwolves did that, but better with Cat as the primary defender on Jokic, and we saw it again in their regular season matchup here. He is so strong, so big, so long that he can physically hold up in that matchup, and he's got good hands, and then that empowers Gobert to do what he does best, which is not one-on-one -on -one post defense. It is rim protection. It is that off-ball defensive value. And then they have so much length around those guys that they can take away those passing lanes. Jaden can really put Jamal Murray in jail at times. Like, 
They have a great defensive formula for the best offense in basketball. That's a valuable thing to have. That's an offense that feels unstoppable in effectively every matchup. And yeah, they still had a lot of offensive success against Minnesota in that series. But it was their toughest series in terms of offensive production. It's not just that matchup, though. Like, this is a great defense point blank. Jaden is so good all around. So incredible at the point of attack. As you mentioned, a really good secondary rim protector too. has averaged a block a game three of the four seasons of his career. But he's also empowered to be so aggressive at the point of attack because of the faith that he has in the backline defense. And that was always a tenet of those Utah defenses. They didn't have good perimeter defenders, but those guys could apply pressure to ball handlers because they knew that if they got beat, Rudy Gobert would be one of the best intimidators, one of the best disincentives in terms of taking shots around the rim that the league has ever seen, really. So, it's a really impressive core in totality. My issue with Ant defensively is really just pick-and-roll defense. I think that his screen navigation can be lazy. He doesn't do a really good job of fighting back in terms of lock and trail and whatnot. In isolation situations... When it's him on an island, I think he holds up really well. We saw it against the Celtics. He had some unbelievable possessions, including the one that was all over social media on Jason Tatum. But a couple situations where he just totally stood up Tatum and Brown. They could not get by him. He forced them into really tough shots or turnovers. It's just a question of the consistency of the effort. But this entire team, they're so big. They're so long. They're very athletic. The two big thing is really working defensively. And Gobert is doing what Gobert has always done best. I'm just still concerned about the offense here. I think the Gobert Towns fit offensively is disastrous. And I really can't continue to watch Cat in this role. He is so often relegated to spot-up shooter. And he's not shooting well at all to start the year. That will certainly even out. He's one of the best shooting big men that we've ever seen. But when it comes to him creating offense for himself on post-ups, he is so easily doubled because of what a non-floor spacer Gobert is. And he can get overwhelmed in those situations. He's a good passing big, but he doesn't have good lanes to attack here as a passer. Every isolation possession, he is forced into a super physical drive. And then he's going to get cut off before he can get all the way to the rim because there's going to be a helper there because he's sharing the floor with Gobert. And then he's going to have to settle for these tough runners, which he's always done to some extent, but it's really, really bad right now. Like the Celtics were able to guard him with Drew Holiday for most of the game, who is a stout physical guard and is going to hold up well in that arena for a guy of his size. But every time off the bounce, it's those tough runners and even though Cat's better at those shots than most, it's just not great offense. So that, to me, is a big problem. Cat is playing poorly. Cat deserves to be held to account for that. But I cannot think of a worse situation for him offensively. So this is a team that is still 18th in offensive rating overall. They're 25th in threes made. Ant is so damn good that he can carry them to competence there. And the combination of him reaching a superstar level offensively and what this team can do defensively very well may be enough for them to win a playoff series, to make anybody uncomfortable. But is it enough for them to be in that contending tier? No, and that's a problem when your roster is so fixed. When you are playing Gobert $47 million in 2026, when you are owing Cat $60 million years down the line, I just don't see a lot of flexibility there, and that's where my concern comes from long-term. Ant's doing special stuff. They're defending at an awesome level. But does this really change their outlook when it comes to a championship ceiling? I don't feel that it does. 
I mean, I think you lay out the the biggest red flag with this team. So would it be worth, I mean, this is what Timberwolves fans have been talking about for, you know, it feels like a year now after they got the Gobert deal done. Is it worth exploring trading Carl Anthony Towns when you do have a formula against the best offense yes. in all of basketball? Yes, absolutely. I think somebody who has more of a genuine wing skill set would be much better suited in this offense. My concern is that I think Cat is going to be hard to move because although he is so skilled offensively for his size, I think he's actually best served defensively playing alongside another rim protector like Gobert. And he's always going to be clunky offensively alongside a five. And if he's holding down the five alone, I don't think he's a high level defender in that role. And you owe him massive, massive amounts of money. So I just don't see a very good market for him. Let me throw out a hypothetical here. I'm just spitballing. Yeah, sure. What about Cat for DeJounte Murray? Do you think that helps both teams? Uh, 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 I don't want DeJounte Murray in Minnesota. I mean, I don't know. I'm just trying to think about other, I don't know. You slide Ant to the three, you slide McDaniels to the four. You have another guy who can handle the rock. I'm just trying to think about. But he's such a spacing issue. He is a spacing issue. I just don't know. I want a spot where Cat can go and thrive and have a, a you know a a partner that really empowers him and makes him better. A mm-hmm. team that has more spacing. I, I like him alongside Train Atlanta. It is going to be hard because you have to make the money work. You have to get requisite value for Cat, and while he's not his his absolute apex right now, you know I mean you drafted him super high. You paid him a ton of money. Now you need to get value back for him. It's tough, but you think that's the best path to making this team better is exploring on how to trade Cat? I do. I do not think this is an offensive fit that can be solved. And of course, Cat is going to play better. He has played so poorly through these first six games offensively. It literally could not be worse. And he will start knocking down threes that are routine for him. But you're not getting close to the best version of him. So... I really have enjoyed what we've seen from Minnesota in these last few games. Anybody is going to be uncomfortable playing them. Anybody is going to have a tough time beating them. And I do really like the top of their bench here. I can't believe that you mentioned Shake Milton and Nikhil Alexander-Walker without giving a shout-out to Slomo, who is still bro, I just... the man. He's the man, bro. Like it or not, he's clamping you up. He's making great decisions as a playmaker. He is a damn good bench player. And of course, Nas Reed is literally America's sweetheart, as he should be. Nas Reed is sick. Dude, I just... Kyle Anderson minutes make me angry, dude. How? How? He's so... I just would not play him in the clutch, bro. He just frustrates me. And I don't know if it's because... In the clutch, he's their seventh best player. They play him in crunch time for some reason, man. And then he screwed up and they were like, oh, we gotta get Cat back out here, stat. I... Kyle Anderson's cool, man. I'm not giving that guy a shout-out. Bro, I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker's shooting like 20% this year. That's all I'm saying. He might be the best bench guard they've had in years, man. Yeah, low standard. By the way, give me Jordan McLaughlin over Uh, him. I'm not with that. Okay, let's talk about what we saw from James Harden in his debut. The Clippers took on the Knicks. What did you think about how this new-look L.A. looked? Uh, you know, it was a, uh, I'd say it was a less than stellar debut for Harden with the Clippers. You know, we know what James Harden still brings to the table. We still know what skill set he has. He's an extra ball handler. He had some playmaking value. He can draw a little bit of attention out of the pick and roll, but we laid out a lot of concerns with adding James Harden. 
One, adding a volatile locker room presence. Uh, that's always one thing with James Harden. You know, he's not the most cohesive, friendly guy to add into a mix of superstars. But on court is where you see much bigger issues with James Harden. It's another ball-dominant player to a team whose best players are at their best with the ball in their hands. And that was my big concern watching this game. A lot of possessions where it's Russ and Harden taking turns when Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are off ball. You know, I think Harden can slow the Clippers down a little bit. Harden's not going to move a ton off ball. He doesn't exert a ton of pressure on the rim. He's not a plus defender, but primarily my issue is the lack of rhythm and flow to the offense. Uh, This cannot be a stars taking turns kind of offense. That is not where this team is going to be at their best. It has to be a well-oiled, cohesive machine. There has to be a flow to the offense. There has to be guys moving off ball. There has to be guys, how do I phrase this, letting their ego down and playing complimentary basketball to superstars. And I thought that's something that we saw the Clippers do really well without James Harden at the start of this season. Russell Westbrook was playing empowered basketball, good team ball. There was a flow to the offense. There was a rhythm. And now that Harden has been thrust into here, there's just a lack of cohesion. In the four in the 19 minutes that we saw with this four-headed monster uh, of PG, Kawhi, Harden, and Russ, they had an offensive rating of 94.9. They scored 37 points on 19 possessions, or on 39 possessions, excuse me. They would have been off the charts if it was 19. That would have been crazy. Yeah. And they allowed 47 points on 39 possessions. That's a defensive rating of 120.5. So I don't know what the solution is here. I don't know if you stagger the minutes heavily and let these guys run with the wings and complimentary guys, if you always push Russ to the bench, if you always push Harden to the bench. I don't really know what the solution is here, but it was a less than inspiring debut. It seems far from a seamless fit. And again, the Clippers had to make the move. They had to do something to move the needle closer to championship contention. They had to go out and get a star, get a supplemental asset, and James Harden seemed like the best asset on the market. But this changed the chemistry of a team that seemed like they had a little something going at the start of this year. And I don't know, man. I don't love the fit, Carson. And... We know the track record with James Harden and Russell Westbrook as supplementary, as complementary guys. You know, it's not something we have to delve into. They're two of the biggest playoff disappointers of this century. And they're two guys that are historically hard to work with in complementary roles. So, no, I didn't love the fit. This is a very long season. We're going to have a lot of basketball for these guys to get acclimated to each other. And I'm optimistic that it will get better. But this is a far from seamless fit. And this was a a far from convincing game that makes me think that the Clippers are going to climb into championship contention. It was an underwhelming debut, and I think you hit on the exact point. This can't be a take-turns sort of offense. It did not feel connected. And Russ has been playing so well this year, but I do think once Terrence Mann is back and healthy, Russ would be better served coming off the bench, attacking bench units as a guy who can be a primary ball handler there. There just isn't enough ball to go around for all four of these guys to play how they want to, and that has been the concern with adding Harden, is yes, injecting more offensive skill, more high-level playmaking, more scoring, is valuable for the Clippers, especially given how consistently one of their two stars is unavailable. But how much do you want to take the hands, the ball out of the hands of of Kawhi and PG, who have been so excellent as these on-ball creators, and yes, can operate off-ball at a high level, and it's great to have somebody who can unlock that, but they're still your two best players, they're still the two guys who you want dictating a significant portion of your offense, 
And that wasn't really the case in this game. Kawhi was overwhelmingly just an off-ball player. He ran one pick and roll this entire game. This is one of the best pick and roll players in basketball. 94th percentile this year, 97th percentile last year, an elite isolation scorer. And he felt like just a spot-up shooter most of the game. Or a guy who might get a three as a trailer in transition. They ran a couple nice off-ball actions for him. Curling off a screen. He got a dunk. He had a nice cut on the baseline off of a pick and roll. Zubats found him as a short roller. But when it comes down to it, he's one of the most unstoppable scorers in basketball. Who is a legitimately good playmaker. Make him the focal point of your offense. Just because James Harden doesn't do anything off ball except for shoot a wide open catch and shoot three when he's just been standing there doesn't mean that you need to completely accommodate his play style and therefore limit the peak effectiveness of your best player. So that was a bit concerning. I get that it's game one and people are trying to acquiesce and accommodate each other except for James Harden who says that he is a system. Good for you, pal. But eventually they're going to have to find a better balance there. PG was also just bad in this game. I did like a couple things that they drew up for him coming off screens. Like there is value for that in doing more with these guys off ball and having a facilitator like Harden, but you have to find the appropriate balance. I will say we've talked about being concerned with how much this group can pressure the rim and their athleticism and the fact that that's always been an issue for them, this reliance on pull-up shooting and that Harden doesn't fix that. You felt that in this game. They were outscored by 18 in terms of points in the paint. Harden did a nice job working his way to some mid-range looks out of pick and roll, but that doesn't solve the issue at hand. He also had nice chemistry with Zubats out of pick and roll, but I would expect him to have good chemistry with literally any big man out of pick and roll. Like, that's what he does. He's phenomenal at that. But then there were some defensive issues in this game. First of all, I think we've seen that their new look small ball lineups are untenable. Losing the size that a Nick Batum has to try to play a P.J. Tucker along with Kawhi and P.G. as your front court, you just can't do that. Like, you see it on one of the first possessions with that lineup. There's an easy lob over the top to Isaiah Hartenstein. They aren't big enough, and they aren't athletic enough for that. A few years ago, when this group was more athletic, and it was Batum at the five, so you had more size, that could be a dangerous five-out group. But they just don't have that weapon in their arsenal anymore. And then I thought they had a very problematic trend throughout this game of turnovers, carelessness with the ball, also a lack of offensive synergy I thought was reflected in that. They were asking Zubats to do a lot as a short roll decision maker, which isn't a strength of his. He's a great play finisher. He's a great offensive rebounder. He's a good rim protector. But that passing vision isn't a strength of his. And so he had a lot of turnovers in this game, but 22 turnovers for the Clippers. And then they were poor in terms of transition defense, led up 42 points on 23 transition possessions, 1.6 points per possession. You're just not going to win many games like that. And then they got crushed on the glass. The Knicks had 18 offensive rebounds to the Clippers seven. The Knicks are the best rebounding team in basketball. They're super big in the front court. They were an elite rebounding team last year. So it's a tough matchup in that respect. But you saw other dudes for the Knicks doing the gritty stuff. Dante DiVincenzo flies in for a couple of offensive boards in this game. I do question when four of the Clippers starting five have that I am the star mentality, how many guys are going to do the little things? How many guys are going to grind on possessions like that, make the hustle plays that have a real impact? So a lot of the things that we would be concerned about with the Clippers were concerning in this game. It's not a huge red flag. Like there's only so much you can take away from one game, but it did fit our expectations in a not so great way. 
Yeah, and you're exactly right, too, with the little things. Again, this was one of the best lineups in basketball to start this season. Russ, PG, Kawhi, and if you were running Big Zoo, or if you were running Nick Batum and Robert Covington, it was a lineup that worked really well together. Again, primarily because the ball is in the hands of your best players. There's not too, you know, too much ball or not enough ball to go around. And you've got guys doing what they do best, spacing the floor and doing the little things, playing defense, crushing the glass. You don't have that depth to rely on anymore. And again, like you mentioned, James Harden does bring some negatives on both sides of the ball. Defensively, he's going to slow you down. He's not going to get back in transition as much. He's not going to be fully engaged there. Off-ball offensively, he's not going to do a ton. He can limit the Clippers in a lot of different ways, and I wonder if... I don't know, do you think there's a world, Carson? Again, we felt both the same way that the Clippers needed to go out and make a move. They had to do something. Do you feel like there's a... Do you feel like they would have been better off potentially keeping their wing depth, or do you still feel like this was the move that they had to go out and make? I think that this is a slight upgrade because of the security policy that we've talked about if one of their stars get hurt. And ultimately, I just don't think those wings were playing at all that high a level. The Batums, I mean, Rocco was struggling to get onto the floor. So they didn't give up much in terms of immediate talent and they did get back pj tucker who's a playable guy so yeah i think that they slightly raised their ceiling by introducing another high level offensive talent but i listed off all of the concerns about the fit here harden's playoff regression the defensive ceiling they can reach the fit offensively all of those remain concerns and that's why i'm not putting clippers into that contending tier and this game certainly doesn't move the needle in a positive direction NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at even bigger basketball wins. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. Basketball is more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5 only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Opposite them, though, Logan, the Knicks have been an interesting team this year for not-so-great reasons, primarily because Julius Randle has been awful. How concerned are you about that? Yeah, I mean, Julius Randle sucks. I, I mean, I don't... I'm not gonna... Bars. I'm not gonna dress it up in, in any other way. We've been saying this about Julius Randle for two years now, and I mean, it put the Knicks in a really hard bind when he made the All-NBA team. And it was like, well, I mean, yeah, you got to pay the guy now. You have to bring him back. He just had a career year. But Julius Randle is one of the most frustrating basketball players to watch because I think in a vacuum, if you built this guy in a lab, he's got, you know, the traits that 
that you like. He's a big physical wing that can overpower smaller guys. They can weaponize his strength. When he is on, his pull-up jump shooting is really nice when he goes on these burners. I mean, I still remember that game last year. I was working. Uh, I was on the clock, and I kept checking the box score of the Knicks game. And it was like he had 8 of 8 from deep or something in the first quarter. And he can go on these torrential hot runs where he's not— I don't think he was 8 of 8 from deep in the first quarter. But I don't, okay. it, was, it was something absurd, dude. He's like 6 of 6. I mean, the pull-up jump shooting, he had like— I don't know, a 40-piece in the first half, and we were tripping, going, is this Julius Randle? Like, who is this guy? Julius Randle is just so frustrating, and I just feel like if the Knicks had anybody else who could space the floor, who could not stagnate the offense, who could play reliable defense, they'd be a lot better. I mean, he doesn't create shots for his teammates. He doesn't create easy offense. He stagnates the offense a lot. He doesn't space the floor reliably well. And my biggest issue is that stagnation. He just pounds the ball. It's like, all right, this is going to be my possession. I'm going to go on the low block, and I'm going to back my guy down, and I'm either going to miss a turnaround jump shot, or I'm going to put up a layup through contact, and I'm going to miss it because I have bad touch. This year, he's 17-10-5 on 35-25-68 splits. They're 15 points worse overall with Randall. They're 11 points worse offensively. They're four points worse defensively. And we've seen this. He's failed in two separate playoff runs. As the guy against the Knicks, it was him going in isolation and putting up bad shots. He shot 18-12-4 and four on 43% true shooting. And 17-8-4 and four in this last playoff run on 49% true shooting. This is what Julius Randle is. He is a bad complimentary player. He is a bad star player. He just doesn't play winning basketball. That's Julius Randle, man. Like I said, in a vacuum with his traits and his ability, I think Randle could be a good player, but he can't get out of his own way. He just doesn't play complimentary basketball. And I want to be clear about something. Jalen Brunson has not played perfect basketball by any means this season. And I think Jalen Brunson is a top-notch creator that I would like to lead out my offense any given day. But I do not think this is an optimized situation by any means for Jalen Brunson. In an optimized situation, he's got a lot of spacing. He's got a lot of guys to kick out to. And, and again, he's not going to create the most easy, seamless offensive shots, right? The easiest offense are open threes or getting to the rim. Jalen Brunson is a smaller guard who's not a freak athlete. So his offense is going to be a lot reliant on turnaround, tough, mid-range shots. Night to night, that's hard to replicate. It's going to be hard for him night to night to knock down those shots every single game and carry an offense. But for the most part, he's going to command attention, he's going to collapse the defense, and he's going to create shots for his teammates. That's really hard when you don't have a whole lot of floor space to surround a guy that creates shots for his teammates. So I'm not ready to put all of this on Brunson, despite him not being perfect, despite him not being uber efficient. But R.J. Barrett is pulling his weight off ball. He's been phenomenal this season. It's literally just Julius Randle. This defense has been awesome. Carson, we talked about this. The defense was historically bad for a Knicks team that had good personnel, that had Tom Thibodeau leading them out. We expected this defensive leap. We expected this team to be really physical, to be great defensively, to be a great rebounding unit. And we expected them to reach an average level offensively if Jalen Brunson could carry this team. And we've seen all that. It has just been Julius Randle continuously shooting this team in the foot game after game, year after year. Again, they had to bench him in the playoffs. There's a lot of talent I like here in New York. I like Grimes. I like Quickly. I like Deuce McBride. I like Hardenstein. I like Mitchell Robinson. I like a lot of personnel here. I just hate Julius Randle. I like Josh Hart, Dante DiVincenzo. I love the freaking Knicks, man. If they just got rid of Julius Randle and got a complimentary asset, Carson, they feel like they could be, I don't know, competitors, fringe contenders. 
The Knicks are really good. Julius Randle sucks. Yeah, and that's basically what we said in the preseason. I was like, I really like the Knicks, and if it weren't for Julius Randle, I would love the Knicks. But it is such a problem when you have a player who is in this sort of star volume role who has so many glaring weaknesses and who is just so clearly not conducive to winning basketball. I don't know if there is a bigger long-term skeptic of Julius Randle than I. I have not bought into him as a guy who you could have in any prominent role on a team that wants to seriously contend. And a huge reason for that is what you mentioned in terms of his inability to play complementary basketball. He is going to be a black hole offensively, and he's just not good enough to justify that, especially because he is such an erratic jump shooter who is so reliant on his tough jumpers. It completely changes the complexion of who he is as a player. Think about when Julius Randle broke out. He had a sudden remarkable leap as a mid-range shooter and as a three-point shooter. And yes, he got better as a playmaker as well, but that was the driving factor in it. Then the very next year, all of a sudden, everybody is out on Julius Randle. Everybody agrees that Julius Randle sucks. What happens that year? Well, he shoots 33% for mid-range. He shoots under 31% from three. All of a sudden, he is not a tenable number one option offensively on even a respectable offense. Then last year, he has a bit of a bounce back to the middle. He's 41% from mid-range, 34% from three, but there's so many hot and cold streaks in there. A terrible start to the year, and then he has a couple of flaming hot months, but now he's in one of those stretches where he's 27% from mid-range. It's just not reliable offense. And he's really, really struggled to create for himself this year. He is a fourth percentile isolation score mm -mm, no, right no. now. Dude, it just updated. I think he's a oh. zero percentile isolation score. Let's go! Let's go! That sounds about right, dude. And he is able to physically overpower a lot of guys, but he's had a lot of matchups against this year where he is dealing with strong wings. And that is the nightmare for him because if he can't, bump you if he can't move you off your center of gravity then he's just gonna settle for a tough jumper and it can even be george niang man <laughs> like even dean wade did okay zion gave him fits because what can he do with zion he can't move him so when a player is that prone to breaking down offensively dependent on matchup when as we've seen in the playoffs if you throw a second defender his way his playmaking is not going to hold up his jump shot is not going to hold up it's just not a guy that you can rely on. This year, he's been 15 a night on 29% from the field, 25% from deep. It's very early in the season, but the Knicks have been 14 points per 100 better with him off the floor. And even at his best, dude, even in his two All-NBA seasons, he has scored with league average efficiency. He's still been the black hole offensively. He's prone to his playmaking breaking down. He is the single worst playoff performer in terms of stars that we have seen ever this century for sure 17 points per game more turnovers and assists 46 percent true shooting so i could not be more out on julius randall and it's just painful that they are invested in him long term it's not that it's a monster contract it's just to be attached to him at all He's so tough to move because any team that is looking to contend is going to say, yeah, sure, he may be able to give you raw production, but how does he fit into a team that is trying to win a title? And the answer basically inevitably is going to be poorly. So I don't see teams around the league who want him. I don't see how you move off him. And that ultimately puts such a hard cap 
on what this team can achieve, even as I love Brunson, and even as I really like the wings they've added in Hart and even Chenzo. Mitchell Robinson's doing his job really well, and RJ's playing his best basketball ever. If you're going to give Julius Randle 20 shots a night, you can't do anything serious. True, man. I just want to throw a few more absurd numbers out about Julius. He's a 16th percentile post-up guy this year, man. He's a 10th percentile pick-and-roll scorer. It's just ugly, ugly basketball. Let me ask you this. Do you think a hype, a good hypothetical role for Julius? Because I think at this point in your career, in his career, it's like he's not going to be a different player. You're not going to really going to get him to drastically change his play style. Is he better suited as a sixth man, as a guy that tries to go out there and fill it up? I mean, I'd just rather not have Julius Randle on my team, but I don't know if there's a winning role for Julius Randle in this league, man. I would just rather be off of him. And I think that... He clearly does not have the mentality to embrace a sixth man sort of role. The clip that was everywhere was when Brunson goes for that go-ahead shot and he has 45 points. Randall doesn't get a touch. He throws his arms up, doesn't even get back on defense in a one-possession scenario very late in the game when he had been awful that entire game. That's a mentality that you just can't work with. That's not a malleable basketball player. He's not just rigid in terms of the limitations of his play style. He's also rigid in terms of his willingness to adapt. And I just would not want anything to do with him, man. So it's a bummer for the Knicks. I still think they can be a good team, but I can't see them making any real noise as long as they're attached to Julius Randle. But you know who's had an impressive start to the season out East, Logan? Is the Philadelphia 76ers no longer married to James Harden? They've won five straight since losing their opener. What have you taken away from their start? Dude, call me crazy. I think the Sixers might be better without James Harden. Am I crazy for that? Not necessarily. No, I don't know that it's exclusively because of removing Harden. I think there's other areas that they have gotten better that they could have still improved with Harden on the roster, but proceed with your take. I mean, I I think that there's a lot of areas that they're better in without Harden. I think they're sped up. I don't think that they, I think they play a little bit faster in transition. They've got, you know, Tobias Harris has been a little more empowered to play a bigger role in this offense. If it's pushing the ball, if it's taking touches, I, I just feel like they've been able to do more creative things offensively when Harden can kind of stagnate your offense. He can kind of slow it down. He can, he can really, uh, you know, play centric through himself. I felt like they've had a, a little more continuity. I felt like they've been sped up. They've run more actions. And you've gotten rid of a defensive liability. But primarily, it's been the job of Tyrese Maxey filling in for James Harden this year. Uh, he's at 26-5-7 on 50-44-93 splits. I think he's done a phenomenal job of filling in for Harden. He's so good as a pull-up jump shooter. He is phenomenal in terms of how he commands attention in the pick-and-roll. You have to send other bodies at him. He's one of the deadliest pick-and-roll scorers in the league. And I was really skeptical about Tyrese progressing as a playmaker. I think he can play point guard and run this team's offense. I have no issues with him. He's opening up stuff for Embiid. He's drawing doubles. He's drawing attention all over the floor. He's getting heads. He's getting bodies. Like There's just a bunch of eyes on him. Uh, Maxi has been phenomenal, dude. I, I think that he can run this team's offense. I think he can be better than James Harden was last year, and I think he can legitimately run point guard. I think he's made Embiid a lot better. Embiid's at 33-11-6, splits with two blocks a game. This team, number three in offensive rating, number five in defensive rating, number two in net rating, and the surrounding pieces have played really well. I've liked what I've seen from Tobias Harris. I've liked what I've seen from Kelly Oubre Jr. as well. You know, 
as it pertains to how this scales to the playoffs, I'm still worried about this team's transition defense. I think they got better there by getting rid of James Harden. You don't have two transition liabilities with Harden and Embiid. You still have one in Joel Embiid, but it's not as big a deal. And I'm still worried about Embiid's shortcomings and deficiencies come playoff time, but I like their depth more after the Harden trade. I like their wing depth. I've liked what I've seen from the surrounding guys. I don't know if Kelly Oubre can be this, you know, <laughs> this effective as the season goes along. I'm still waiting for the bottom to drop out, but he's been great. And I think that Tyrese Maxey can play better than Harden did last year. I like the Sixers a lot. You know, I don't know if they're... I'd still debate between them and the Bucks for like the number two, number three spot, number four, somewhere in there. Uh, the Celtics are by far my number one team, and I'm still concerned about the things that we've seen from Philly in the past, but... I think the Sixers are better off with James Harden. I like their depth. I, I like their starting five more without Harden, and I like the depth that they got back for Harden. I like the Sixers more without him, man. I think that they are at least on the same level as a basketball team, but the reason I answered your question the way I did about some of those improvements being independent of whether Harden is on the roster or not is that I think we are seeing a significantly improved version of Joel Embiid, man. He is legitimately conducting the offense this year. And his biggest issue, we can talk, of course, about health. We can talk about how he has struggled to maintain his scoring level and his jump shot hasn't held up in the playoff stage as it has in the regular season. But the biggest thing that defenses have been able to attack is his shortcomings as a playmaker, his inability to, to dissect double teams and just how that can handicap the offense. He's doing a good job of anticipating doubles this year, of seeing when guys are digging in, he can just kick it out to the shooter, but it's even more than that. Like we've seen skip passes from him. We've seen nice laydowns as a driver. We've seen him spotting weak side cutters with pretty good regularity. And it's not just conducting things out of the post from the middle of the floor. We've seen him more comfortable handling in transition and sort of being a grab and go guy, not in terms of pushing the ball all the way down the floor, but some of those hit ahead passes where he can help push the tempo himself. He's running more handoffs. And that has been a really nice dynamic between him and Maxi that he didn't have as much with Harden. And it's not that he's a great passer. He's not super accurate. He is overly casual as a passer, I would say, and sometimes that makes him a little bit off target. Maybe the best example of that would be when he tried to bat the pass to the shooter and it was like the game-ending turnover. That was an embarrassing moment. That's an extreme example, but he does sort of have that tendency. So it's not that he's doing genius stuff, but he is clearly looking like one of the better passing centers in the NBA who's improved his, bat his passing in every phase. And that meaningfully changes who he is as a basketball player. If he can amplify his teammates, if he can punish defenses more actively for sending doubles his way, then you're looking at a guy who is arguably without weakness. Like, that is going to make life easier for him as a scorer. It's going to make him more efficient and more productive there. And defensively, he's been the best volume rip protector in the NBA this season. He is holding opposing players 16% below their typical field goal percentage, while he is also the NBA's leading scorer. So I've been a real Embiid critic because of the issues that we have seen with him in the postseason. But if he is this improved as a playmaker and he maintains this, that changes the picture. Now, the problem is, I don't think this basketball team is talented enough to win a title. And that is frustrating when you have the best version of Embiid. But they are going to win a lot of regular season games. They're probably going to win a playoff series. Maxi is the man and... 
I have raved about him as a scorer since he was a prospect. Of course, he's special in terms of three level, the combination of burst and change and pace and how good he is from floater range, how great he is as a pull-up shooter, as a spot-up player running the floor in transition. The dude is just a stud bucket. That was predictable. But I've been impressed with his playmaking too. It's not that he is seeing stuff that only the elite playmakers in the league do, but he's doing a very good job of taking what the defense gives him, of just conducting the offense, particularly out of pick and roll with Embiid. They have a nice synergy. He's hitting him with nice po uh, nice pocket passes, good bounce passes. So he's still setting up Embiid to thrive out of pick and roll, which is something that Harden really unlocked last year. I worried if they would lose that dimension, but they really haven't. And those two just have one of the best two-man games in the league right now. I also tweeted this because it's just remarkable. Maxi is one of the lowest turnover players that we have ever seen. Like, that is not hyperbole. He is averaging 1.2 turnovers per game right now while he's dropping 25 a night and 7 assists a night. Last year, in 11 playoff games in which he was dropping 20-plus points per game, he had 0.7 turnovers per game. Last regular season, 1.3 turnovers per game. Like, he just does a very good job of taking care of the ball. And yes, part of that is reflective of the fact that he isn't a truly great playmaker. He doesn't have those high-risk, high-reward opportunities that can separate the great from the good. But you can't complain about a guy who is just consistently scoring efficiently, doing a good job playmaking, taking care of the ball. There's only a handful of guys who have ever averaged 25 a game on two turnovers a game or fewer, which Maxie's well below right now, but he's not going to sustain 1.2, I don't think. We'll see. But none of those guys are playmaking at the volume that he is as well. So he deserves huge props. We both picked him for most improved and he was already damn good. He is living up to that hype. And then Ubre has just been an amazing pickup, man. The production alone, 18 points per game on 64% true shooting is nuts. He has won that starting job over the last few games. And he's really having a versatile impact on the game. Been awesome in transition, using his athletic advantages there. Has been a good spot-up shooter. Has been a smart cutter. I mentioned Embiid spotting those guys on the weak side. A lot of the time, that's been Kelly Oubre. And then when he has been entrusted with these pick-and-roll possessions, he's been an 88th percentile guy there. He's getting buckets. And he's defending at a very solid level. So that, to me, is just a lesson to everyone. If you can get a player who is as talented as Christian Wood or Kelly Oubre... On the literal minimum, there is no justifiable reason not to do that if you are a serious contending basketball team. Because having another high-impact rotation guy with really no risk involved, I mean, what's he going to do? You haven't invested in him financially. It's not a multi-year deal. You can literally just not play the guy. I don't know why you would pass up on such a low-risk, high-reward opportunity like that. I think that Ubre has really proven that point this year. I mean, they've been super impressive. I really like them. Again, I don't think they can compete with the Celtics in terms of all-around talent. I mean, that's just such a damn good basketball team. I don't think they can compete with the best version of the Bucs, having two top 15 players and a really good number three, a really good number four but they're definitely in that next tier. They're doing a good job. And you're right. They're not hurting from the absence of James Harden right now at all. Uh, is Maxi knocking on that door for you? Top 25, top 20 in the league? He's definitely knocking on the door of top 25. I don't think top 20, but he's a star, man. He's absolutely going to make an all-star case this year. 
this is what I've been saying for years. He is one of the best scorers in the league. And now he is having the volume opportunities to show that. The kid is special. He continues to get better. He's the man. What about you? He's close. I'd have to I'd have to map that out a little more. But yeah, I'd say top yeah. 30 for sure and knocking on the door at top 25. It's it's really remarkable. I mean, we've just seen it so quickly, dude. And <laughs> Maxie's a beast, man. He's the 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 turnover number is actually baffling, though, Carson. It's like having a, I don't know, like an elite game managing quarterback. You know, it's like, and I don't. It's better than that because he's a real big time playmaker. But you know what I mean? I mean, like you said, he may not be making the Luka Doncic, the LeBron James level passes, but that level of ball protection is remarkable, man. Every high impact guy, that number goes up. And what I think is really remarkable about this year, he averaged one point three last year. You said right. That's in a significantly less volume role. You know, I mean, this is the highest volume role that he's ever been in, and he's still protecting the ball at that high of a level. Uh, Maxie's Maxie's definitely knocking on the door of the top-notch NBA stars for me, man. But even 1.3 turnovers per game as a 20-point-per-game scorer is nuts. Let's wrap this up by talking about another guy who may be in those most improved player conversations, who's taken a real leap who I have not been as high on historically, who plateaued last year, but is looking like a different guy right now, and that is Scotty Barnes. The Raptors as a whole aren't getting a lot of love, nor do they deserve it. They're one of the least fun basketball teams to watch in a year when it feels like almost everybody is fun to watch. But Scotty is doing his thing, man. What do you make of what we've seen from him so far? Yeah, hand up, Carson. Uh, I did not see the leap coming. I thought he had stagnated last year, his rookie season. He's 15-8-4. He wins Rookie of the Year. His second season, he goes 15-7-5. and five, And I was like, okay, you know, this is what Scotty is. There was a certain jankiness to Scotty's yeah. game. There was a certain lack of, yeah, man, flow. It was, uh, there's just some superstars that are kind of ugly to watch, man. Giannis can be ugly to watch. And Scotty was just kind of an ugly ball player. Not really aesthetically pleasing. This year, though, 23-10-6. Two blocks, one steal a game on 51-42-76 splits. That's a true shooting of just under 61%. You know, there's I've always liked the physical traits, the athleticism, the strength, the arms. The He's always a freak athlete. But the improved shooting has really been staggering. From 31% on jumpers to 32% on jumpers last season, 31% being in his rookie year, he's shooting 47% on jumpers this year. From deep, he was 30% as a rookie, 28% last year. He's shooting 42% on threes this year. That's 16 to 38. And what's really remarkable is his pull-up jump shooting. He was 40% on really low volume his rookie year. On decently high volume, he was 26% last year. This year, he's shooting pull-up Jays at a 63% clip. And I really, really like him as an offensive player, Carson. It's not just the the shooting. It's how easy the offense he's creating. There's a difference, man. It's smart, easy offense, conducive to winning basketball. He's attacking mismatches at will. When guys put a small body on Scotty, you just can't. You cannot put a little guy on Scotty Barnes. He's backing him down. He's showing he's got a little touch with both of his hands, but he's weaponizing that physicality. And when they do put a little guy on Scotty, it's like, we got to send the second help guy. You can't send doubles at Scotty. He is dissecting them. When guys roll over or just pre-rotate it all to help off of Scotty, he is dotting guys up. I have absolutely loved his playmaking in the half court and in transition. He's passing creatively. Some of these dimes, man, that one bounce pass he threw in transition between guys. He threw another dot uh, to the paint in a game. 
He's just a good passer, and the ball movement is within rhythm and unselfishly. It's not like Julius Randle pounding the rock and then finding a look. It's it's in the flow of the offense, which is what is really remarkable to me. I love how he runs the floor. I love how he pushes in, tra- in transition. The Raptors may be an ugly half-court offense. They're the number one transition team in basketball. They're number six in defensive rating. And he's an average transition scorer, but he is a real plus in transition, pushing the ball and playmaking in transition. Uh, defensively, he's two steals and a block per game. He is a really long and strong defender. Other way around. Two blocks There's, and a sorry. steal per game. Yeah, I wrote that down wrong. Yeah, he can capably defend one through four. He can sometimes defend five. And his impact is just multifaceted. It's massive. It is leading to winning. Scotty has been phenomenal this year, man. The Raptors are 22 points better for 100 possessions with him on the floor. They are 10.2 points better offensively. They play like a league average offense with Scotty. They play like the worst offense in basketball without him. But they're 11.9 better defense or points better defensively. Uh, they have the third best defense in basketball with Scotty, the 23rd defense without him. And offensively, his confidence is off the charts. I feel like they talk about that every game. When you watch a Raptors game, oh, he looks super confident. But it's true. He's confident, he's in control, and he's dictating the game on both ends. If you watch that Spurs game, if you didn't, I, I implore you to go and watch it. What he was doing late down the stretch, the pull-up threes, the... Late game clutchness. I mean, there was no fear in Scotty's face. He said, I'm going to take these shots. I'm going to get these looks, and I'm going to close this game out. And that's exactly what he did. I think you can build around Scotty, man. And I was skeptical. You know, I thought there were better prospects. I was really skeptical about the offensive leap, the jump shooting, the ease of offense, because I thought Scotty was really janky. I didn't see this coming. And he has taken a bona fide leap. I like it, man. I think they have assets if they want to retool around him. And I don't think this is an optimized situation. You were seeing a guy thrive kind of in spite of the assets around him. I don't absolutely hate the team around him, but I don't love what they've built. I think they need a star guard to pair with him and to help this half-court offense. I think that's what they've needed for years, and I would love a, a, a real floor-spacing five to open the floor up even more for Scotty. but Scotty's a star, and I think you can build around him, man. I think this, is a, this guy's a building block, a foundational piece. If he's a number two, if he's a number three, because again, I, you know, I still don't know about the you know, top-notch scoring skill set. I still think you might need another guy who's 25 to 30 a night, but I think Scotty can be a number two or a number three on a damn good team, and I think the Raptors have assets to go out and move to help reach that that goal, that that ceiling, that team uh, that is a contender around Scotty. Yeah, this is such a big win for the Raptors in a year that in basically every way was shaped up to just be disappointing. You talk about not loving what they have around him, bro. I mean... It's just a miserable fit. Like, I understand that Schroeder is having a total outlier shooting stretch and he's playmaking pretty well right now. Good for him. He's still not an ideal spacing fit in the backcourt, nor is Spicy P, nor is Pirtle. Like, they're just playing such a big, clunky lineup and Scotty is succeeding in spite of that. And last year, I would have subscribed Scotty himself as big and clunky. Like, that is the nature of his game. It has been janky. He's relied on those little touch shots that haven't always been the prettiest, that he hasn't always been super efficient with. But this is a different basketball player that we're seeing right now. This is as shocking as if Giannis, a handful of years ago, not at this stage in his career, not now that he's 
pushing 30. But if he just showed up and was shooting like this through the first seven games of a season, that's not even hyperbole, bro. Like, Scotty's jumper has always been busted. Yeah, man. He was 28% from deep <laughs> last year. He has been a complete just let him take it guy. He was an awful jump shooter in college. To come out and shoot at this level, 42% from deep on five and a half attempts per game, I mean, it's just incredible. And it's still not a super pretty shot. It's not super fluid visually, but his comfort shooting, not just off the catch, but shooting pull-ups. I mean, he has an actual step back. Like to have that level of perimeter shot making from him. And I don't think he's going to sustain this level of shooting 40%, but the volume alone is an indicator of how much more comfortable he is. And I do think he is now solid there. That's a real game changer for him. That changes how defenses have to respect him. That changes the variety of ways in which he can create offense. And it's still a lot of the ugly, tough runners, but that's part of his shot diet. He's okay. He can sort of bully some of these mismatches physically and shoot those shots over guys. And his playmaking has been good. He got good vision out of pick and roll, hitting rollers and shooters. You mentioned it in playmaking. He's a force. He's going to bring some of that downhill pressure. But as impressive as the offensive leap has been, I am just more astounded by what we see from Scotty defensively, who has always been a great defensive prospect. He was a really good defensive rookie and a really good second-year player defensively. But now we're seeing him more of that backline helper role. He's always been so good at the point of attack for a guy of his size, a guy who could easily be a power forward, 6'9", crazy length, but also very agile, very comfortable applying pressure to ball handlers and hanging on the perimeter with guys who have legitimate skill and speed out there. But what he is doing as a help defender, over two blocks per game, holding opposing players 8% below their typical field goal percentage in size of six feet. That to me is special. He's got fantastic hands. He is one of the truly great all-around defenders in basketball today in year three. And I think he's going to make a hell of an all-defense case this year. So that sort of all-around leap, man, you got to give props to anybody doing that. And when I think about him compared to my long-term boy, Evan Mobley, who I've always loved, who was my favorite prospect in that class, the value of taking a leap is just immense. Mobley is a guy who more or less looks like the same guy in year three that he did in year one, especially offensively. Defensively, he's continued to improve. He was great as a rookie. He was great last year. Right now, he's probably the best that he's been even. But Scotty has continued to progress on both sides of the ball and now has just a clear blueprint to being a star. No, you're not going to run your offense through him as a number one because he doesn't have that sort of high-level skill, but he's significantly improved in his offensive skill. He does have these athletic traits. He does have this playmaking to where he can be a complimentary piece, a transition guy, can attack you as a short roller, can also be a ball handler. All of these skill sets, this versatility, and then he's going to be a hell of a defender. Props to him. He's playing awesome, and he is a real silver lining for the Raptors. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all. But I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what so. I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because it ain't Nick? <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carson, we did our top 10 players to build around a while back. Would Scotty crack mm. that list for you now? That's a great question. So that was our top 10 guys, 25 and under, which included like Jason Tatum and SGA. They were 25 at the time that we made the list. I think he would be just knocking on the door. He's probably just outside for me, but I would have to look at a full list of all of the eligible guys. Hold on. Let me see. ESPN just did a list of their Here, let me, guys let me under throw 25. An, let me throw in a couple guys at you. So you had okay. Trey Young as your 10th guy. Would you take him over Trey yet? That's a good question. That's a really good question. I think that Trey is better suited to make you a respectable team as a number one because of the caliber of offense that he can create. I think Scotty is better served in terms of long-term skill set to be a number two on a true contending team. And my goal is to win titles, so that's a bit unfair because you're putting them in different roles, but Trey really can't be a number two, so I think I would take Scotty. Would you take, uh, is Fox or Halliburton a debate for you versus Scotty? I would take Halliburton. I think what he's doing already in Indiana, that level of creation, uh, the playmaking, the efficiency as a score, so, so impressive. I would still prefer that. I think what Fox does as a three-level score, just how his speed warps defenses, I think that that value of offensive creation still is more valuable to me. But he's also a much more mature, refined player at this point. I mean, he's got a handful more years in the league, so it's tough, but I still don't see that sort of ceiling for Scotty as an offensive number one. I think I'm with you, but there is value in Scotty's all-around impact. Like, there's not an area on the basketball court this year in which he has faltered. He's been a great defender. He has been a great passer, and I think he'd have more assists if he had better shooting and surrounding assets around him, too. Uh, he's been phenomenal shooting. He's been phenomenal at attacking mismatches and creating easy offense. Like, there hasn't really been an area where he's not been good on the basketball court. And, yeah, I think he'd be in that top 15 tier for me on guys to build around. And he was far from it in the past, you know, uh, after last season. Yeah, it's a real leap, man. And 
I'm talking about guys who I prefer offensively and that being the difference maker, which mm -hmm. is my fundamental philosophy, but you really can't overstate how great this guy is defensively and how great he's going to continue to be. And that's what puts him in these conversations. He's not going toe to toe with any of these elite talents in terms of just offensively. He's really good there now, but he still has more issues. But boy, when you look at the totality of that impact, that is something special. Also, I'm just looking at the CSBN's top 25 under 25. What a garbage list, bro. They got Triple J at 10 and they got Bruh. Chet at 13. How is Chet 13? How is Chet behind Evan Mobley? I love both of them. But, I mean, one of them is already a much more skilled offensive player and has more defensive tools and is more ahead of schedule defensively. Very, very strange list. I do not approve of this list whatsoever. Josh Giddy at 18, that's too high for me, man. That's too high. People are going to have to see with Josh Giddy eventually. Franz down at 16. Franz is better than that. Well, now I'm just talking about a list that nobody else can even see. So I guess that that's our sign to wrap things up. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. As always, if you did, the good news is there is plenty more Nerd Sesh out there. You can find all of our full shows on the Volume YouTube page, and you can listen to our shows across audio platforms. You can join us on Discord. Just become part of our community, talk basketball, football with us, etc. That is at the link in our bio across our social media, which the handles for that are Instagram and TikTok at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can also check out our merch at thevolume.com and at our link tree. We've got hats, we've got shirts, we've got hoodies, we've got the flags behind us. So you can find all of that. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brever. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.